chapter 9. Chapter 9 is a fairly long chapter, and we're not going to read all of it because um, I'm going to let you do that this afternoon or this week. I'm going to go through part of it, and I'm going to kind of do the Reader's Digest thing. We're going to look at the beginning of it, we're going to look at the end of it, and um, I'm going to tell you kind of what's in the middle, but you can read that for yourself. The middle is basically a whole history of the children of Israel. Um, from the time of Abraham all the way up until the time of Nehemiah. So if you have not, if you're not familiar with your Old Testament and you kind of want to know the Old Testament in a snapshot, read Nehemiah chapter 9. It kind of gives you the whole history of the children of Israel really quickly. Um, Nehemiah chapter 9, what has happened is, last we talked last week, they're celebrating the Feast of Booths, so they're spending a week in these little tents that they have made out of sticks and Every day they're spending time in the Word of God and time learning, and so this is where we pick it up in chapter 9. So Nehemiah chapter 9, here's what it says, starting in verse 1. It says, Now, on the 24th day of the month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dust on their heads. This was a way of saying these people were serious about serving God. Um, The idea of fasting was the idea of we're going to put aside food and we're going to focus on a relationship with the Lord. The idea of sackcloth is they would wear very, very uncomfortable material, um, kind of burlapish type stuff. And the reason that they wore that was they didn't want to get comfortable. They wanted to remind themselves of, of, of the difficulty and hardship that they were going through. In other words, they were in a culture in which they embraced hardship rather than run from it. Um, you know, we try to minimize hardship and minimize pain. When they got serious about something, some people would put on sackcloth as a way to say, hey, look, I'm, I, I'm serious about what's happening. And then ashes, I would put ashes on top of her uh, head or that kind of thing as a reminder just of, of the fact that I'm, I'm very, very sad. In some cultures, in, in, there's a period of mourning where um, we did this with Anna um, Loman when we supported Anna. Um, her dad passed away, and she's from Yugoslavia, Serbia. And in Yugoslavia, Serbia, she was required to mourn for a year. Um, she had to wear dark clothes and black and stuff like that for a year in their culture to signify the aspect that she was mourning. And that's kind of the, cult, the culture here. They're saying, we're very serious about this point in our, in, in, in our lives. And it says, then those of the Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners. And they stood and they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law. So this would have been Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and that thing. And it said, um, and the law of the Lord their God for one fourth of the day and another fourth of the day they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. So basically what would happen is they'd spend about three hours learning about the Word of God. They'd spend about three hours worshiping and confessing their sins and that kind of thing. Now you go, okay, now wait a minute. The day's 24 hours, a quarter, six hours, not three. You need to remember in that culture, a typical day was 12 hours, sun up to sundown. So typically a quarter of the day often would be three hours. So they'd spend that amount of time focusing on that. And so they would spend time reading the Word of God and then they would stop and they would spend three hours going, okay, this is what it means to us, and this is how we apply it, and let's worship God, and let's focus on that. And this is what they did. And they spent a tremendous amount of time doing this because they wanted, again, the, the Word of God had kind of been pushed aside in their lives, and now they were starting to get serious about it. And then when you start in the next verse, what you're going to see is, and we're not going to go there because that's the part we're not going to read, they start going through the whole history of the children of Israel. And what happens is they start to see this pattern. And basically what they would see is they would see this pattern where God blessed people, where he blessed his people, and, and then 
the people would complain and gripe against God and God would continue to bless them. And then all of a sudden something would happen where finally God said enough is enough and they would go into captivity and they'd be in captivity for a while and then what would happen is in captivity they would start getting so miserable they'd cry out to God and God would deliver them. And then after a while, they started being blessed. And during the time of blessing, things were going well. And then as things would go well, they started to complain. And they saw this cycle in the lives of the children of Israel and their grandfathers and great-grandfathers and great-great-grandfathers. And they started to realize they were part of this, that this was their history. This history was one of which, in which they had completely taken, they would completely, they would be blessed by God and then they would get then we'd get apart from God, and then they would go into captivity, and then they would cry out from deliverance, and then God would step in and deliver them, and then they would be in a time of blessing. And, he, and they just noticed this pattern going over and over and over and over and over again. And they started to realize that their grandfathers and great-grandfathers and great-great-great-grandfathers had done this over and over and over again. And now they found themselves in a point where in that cycle they were in this time of blessing. They were in this time where now... They had come out of Persia. They had gotten the walls built. They were now living within the city. God was starting to work again in their midst. And they were like, okay, we get what's happening now, and we get what's coming ahead if we're not careful. And what's really interesting in this is as they look at it, they also step back and they focus on God. And they look at what God did during those times, and they come up with all of these characteristics and all of these attributes that they see of God. They see the fact that God is great. They see the fact that God is patient. They see the fact that God was merciful, that God made a covenant with these people and stuck with it no matter what. And it's interesting that in spite of all that happened, they step back and say, look, God, you did everything you should have done. We have no problem with, with you and the way you handled all these people and, and what you did. We realize the mistakes of the people. You, God, on your part of it, you were incredible. And you come to the end of the chapter, and this is what we want to focus on, Nehemiah chapter 9. Here's what they say at the end. After going through all of the history, here's what they say. Here we are, your servants, servants today. And the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty. Here we are, servants in it. And yet, it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us. Now, here's what's interesting. Notice what he says. Because of our sins, they have said, you know what, everything our fathers and forefathers and great-grandfathers and great-great-grandfathers, we're, we're part of that. We take ownership in that. Because of our sin, also they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. And because of all this, in other words, they say, look, we understand now the reason we were in captivity was because we messed up. We make a sure covenant and we write it. And our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. We're going to talk about the significance of that in a minute. But basically, here's what it means. After looking at this whole thing, here's what they said. God, we understand the path that our fathers, our grandfathers, our great-grandfathers, our great-great-grandfathers, our great-great-great-great-grandfathers went down. We understand the cycle that got us where we are today. We have decided that on this day, from this day forward, we're going to break the cycle. We're not going to do what they did. In fact, God, we're going to go so serious about it, we're going to make a covenant with you this time. Before, you made a covenant with us. Now we're making a covenant with you. And we're going to talk about the significance of that and the implications of that for these people as well as for us in a minute. So 
That's Nehemiah chapter 9. Let's talk about a couple of takeaways as you go through and you dig through this chapter and you, some, some things that you, you start to see as you, as you apply it. Um, the first thing is this idea. One of the things you learn in chapter 9 is that blessings are a two-edged sword. Okay? Um, let me explain this to you in a second. Blessings are a two-edged sword. You see, the Bible says, many of you were brought up with the idea that when God's upset with you, he like hits you upside the head with a baseball bat to get your attention. But what you'll find is Scripture teaches just the opposite. Scripture teaches that the goodness of God leads to repentance. In other words, Scripture teaches the idea that often when you and I get out of line, God blesses us. You see this in the life of the children of Israel. This is what they saw in Nehemiah chapter 9. What happened? God delivers them out of Egypt. They get into the wilderness. What's the first thing they do? Within three days, what are they doing? Griping and complaining, right? God, you haven't got us any water. So what does God do? He gives them water. A couple days later, what is it? God, you don't, you're not feeding us. You're not taking care of us. What does he do? He feeds them. In fact, it gets to a point they keep complaining. God feeds them every day. So think about this for a minute. Every day they got up, there was a man on the ground, a reminder that God was taking care of them. Every day that they, get, they put on their shoes, they noticed their shoes wouldn't wear out. And they noticed that God was taking care of them. And what did they do as God was taking care of them? They griped and complained, right? What did they say? God, you're bringing us out here to kill us. You brought us out into this land to wipe us out. And so what happens? At some point, what does God do? God says, all right, you know what? If this is what you want, if you really think I'm out here to, 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 to kill you, then you'll die out here. I will give this to your children. Um, and for 40 years, you're going to wonder until you've all died off, and then your children will get what I promised to you. This is what, and it's interesting because what happens is God finally says, okay, I'm going to give you what you want. And it's interesting as you look at that because here's the thing. The entire time Israel is going along, they're griping and complaining, and they're getting blessed. They're griping and complaining, and they're getting blessed. And they're griping and complaining, and they're getting blessed. And what happens? They start to believe that. It's okay to gripe and complain. Why? Because we're getting blessed. God's not hitting us upside the head. God's not getting in trouble. God's just taking care of us. So you know what? It must not be that bad. And it's dangerous when we go down that road. You want to know why we are where we are as a country right now? Because we made a whole lot of bad decisions and God's continued to bless our country. And we assume that since God's blessing us, what we're doing is okay. And it's not. And there's coming a point at which God's going to draw a line with our country and he's going to say enough is enough. And you go, will that be a bad thing? Well, you know, it's going to be a bad thing for us, but in the end it will be a good thing for Christianity. Because you'll find out who's real and who's not. Uh, the church has always done the best under times of persecution, not under times of blessing. It's always grown deeper and, and more solid during those times. But see, the, the problem with it is what happened is we, hit, we get into a point in our lives where here's what happens. We start thinking, I'm doing wrong and it's okay because God's not playing gotcha. The reality of it is God's blessing is to try to get you to understand he's still taking care of you and he still loves you and he still wants you to, to, to get back in line. It's not because, you know, it's not because what you're doing is okay. 
And that was a problem with Israel. And in and, and, and Nehemiah chapter 9, they recognized that. One of the other sides of this is this. One of the other sides, and I say it's a two-edged sword, because one of the other sides of, of blessing is this. We, get, we have been so blessed that we start to assume that we deserve or we earn or we have a right to blessing. So our lives go along and everything's going hunky-dory and everything's great and all of a sudden difficulty comes and I watch people who go, well, if God's going to allow that to happen in my life, then I don't want anything to do with that kind of God. Time out. That, that's the same God that has helped you in your health and your job and your career and to live in this country and put a roof over your head and allowed you to get out of bed and giving you this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And because one or two or three or 20 or 30 or 40 things don't go the way you think they ought to go, that you think that it's okay then to go, okay, I don't want anything to do with that kind of God. That's why I say this blessing thing is a two-edged sword. And it's really important for us to understand that, look, when God's blessing us, we appreciate it and we value it, but we understand we, it's not because we deserved it or earned it or have a right to it. And we need to understand that it, it, it's always important for us to look at our lives and say, am I honoring God with my life? Not because God's blessing me, everything's okay. We always have to evaluate our own lives. And that's what Israel was saying. They stepped back and said, you know what, it's a time of blessing right now, but you know what, we've really messed up. And God, we're going we're to try to make that right. A second idea here is something that we touched on this a little bit in Sunday school, but um, I, this family of origin thing, and, I, and that's a psychology term, so I'm a little bit hesitant to use it, but some of you know what I'm talking about. Family of origin in the world of psychology and counseling and things like this is this. We step back and we look at your family that shaped who you are today, okay? So in other words... Um, we try to figure out, okay, if you're, if you're somebody, often you see this in people who, um, for instance, in people with alcohol who have trouble with alcohol, one of the questions we ask is, tell me about alcohol in your family. How was, how was alcohol addressed when you were growing up? You know, you'll find out that, you know, well, you know, alcohol was abused in their family. And that's why often you find abusers become abusers or alcoholics uh, come from a family of alcoholics because there, there's something that you saw modeled. When I'm counseling couples in marriage, we go through family of origin. Because I explained to them that, look, for 20 years or so, this is what you saw modeled. And so if you, if you don't think about it, you're going to naturally do this because this is what you saw modeled. Unless you have purposely changed it, you always go back to your family of origin. So for instance, um, how did your parents handle money? Um, how was money handled within your family? Because that's how you learn how to handle money, is what you saw modeled in front of you. How did your parents hanger conflict? You know, I get a couple who comes in, and one of the questions I ask is, when your parents fought, how did they fight? You know, and I, I usually put it this way. Okay, somebody's usually a yeller, screamer, or holler. Oh, that was my mom, you know? Okay, somebody sometimes just walks away and runs away and slams the door and leaves. Oh, yeah, that was my dad. He didn't want conflict. Those couples I love because we've got something to work off of. The couples that scare the life out of me is when somebody goes, oh, I never saw my parents argue. And I'm going, great, you've got 20 years of not seeing any conflict and it being resolved. You know, oh, my parents never talked about money. Oh, great, now we've got a problem. 
Because you need something to look at, to look back on. And this is what Israel does. They look back and said, this is what our parents did. Now, we're in a culture which what, the Oprah culture, so to speak, which what did it do? You know, we came into the whole Oprah generation. It's like, I'm going to go on TV and I'm going to blame my parents for all my problems. You know, that's not what we're talking about here. Um, these people said, I'm going to go on, I'm going to look back, and I'm going to realize I was part of that too because that's what I'm doing and we're going to change it. And what I want to challenge you to do is to step back and look at your life and look at the things that have influenced you to say, because this is what I do with married couples when they get ready to get married. I say, okay, tell me the things about your parents' marriage that you liked, that were healthy, that you want to bring into this marriage. And tell me the things that you'd like to push aside. Because you have to make the decision to change it. If you don't change it, this is why when Scripture says the sins of the father are go to the third and the fourth generation. That's not saying if your parents did this, you're going to do this. What it's saying is if your parents did this and you don't change it, chances are really, really good that's what you're going to do too. And that's how, that's how we get this, what some people call this generational sin thing. It's like, for instance, I never forget, many of you heard the story. Uh, my dad had a pretty hot temper. And I'll never forget. I can tell you exactly where we were. We were driving home from church one Sunday. And the pastor had preached on, on temper. And my dad in the front seat said, kids, look, I'm, I'm really convicted about my temper and stuff like that. And I want you to know that I'm not going to, I'm going to do everything in my power to change losing my temper. And I'm not going to lose my temper anymore. I had a 16, 17-year-old kid sitting in a back seat. And I went, like, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I'm thinking in my head, you know, something's going to have to freeze over for that to happen. But um, I'm in the back of my mind going, this is never going to happen. I mean, you know. And then it was probably about, a, I don't know, a couple months later, whatever else, um, I uh, wrecked the car. Uh, totaled it. Absolutely totaled it. 1977 Aero GT stick. Um, Left-hand turn, it was during a snowstorm, pulled all the way out, and in order to get all the way, I, I w actually the front of the car, and that's a small little car, was actually out across the dotted line before I could even see if traffic was coming. Guy comes down 55 mile an hour, ripped the whole front end all the way off of it. My dad was already at work, my mom was already at work. I had to call my dad and say, hey dad, I wrecked the car, can you come pick up Cindy and I and take us to school? And I thought, now. <laughs> we are going to see whether God is still on the throne. Um, I'll never forget. My dad came in, and my dad said, tell me what happened, showed him the police report, uh, showed him the car. He said, okay, let's get to school. Drove to school. It's about 20 minutes, longest drive of my life. Drive to school, wanting him to chew me out, yell, lose his temper, and he never did. Never did. And I thought, you know what? If he could change it. Maybe I can, because I had, and it took me a while, but I finally kind of managed that out because I realized I had to break the cycle too. Because that's what I had seen modeled for 17 years. And again, where did my dad learn it? From my grandfather. He passed away before I was around, but you know, my grandfather literally told my dad. 16 years old, he told my dad. He said, son, he said, uh, you think you're going to tell me what to do? He said, we'll go in the backyard. And he said, and we will duke it out. And there were only one of us going to walk out of that backyard. Now, my grandfather was a railroad welder. Okay? 
And, he, and I'm not saying that's the way you raise kids, but I'm saying that's, that's the, my dad had learned that from his father. And so it took finally me to sit down, my dad to sit down and break the cycle, and then for me to sit down and work on breaking the cycle, because otherwise what was going to happen? I was going to teach it to my kids. You know, they may still learn it, but I just didn't want to learn it for me. You know, that's the thing, and that's what I'm talking about, is, is you step back, and, and this is what Israel said, they said, we are going to break the cycle, we are going to change it. And you have to understand how they changed it. If you notice in this verse, see what it says at the, verse 38. And because of this, we will make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests will seal it. We don't understand this idea of covenant because we're, it's, it's not part of our culture. But, but let me tell you the origin of a covenant. What they would do whenever anybody made a covenant, like when, when, when God and Abraham made a covenant or, or when, when people would make a covenant, what they would do is they would take an animal, a sheep or, or cattle or something like that, um, they would kill it, they would drain the blood, and they would slice it down the middle. And they would take two halves and put them on either side. So if, if say, say Jim and I were going to make a covenant, okay, then here's what we would do. We'd take, we'd, take a, we'd take one of my animals and we'd slice it down the middle, and we'd put one half here, and we'd put one half here, and of course there's kind of a little blood and all that mess in the middle of it, and Jim would come on this side of it, and I would come on this side of it, and we would meet in the middle, and we would shake hands, and we would say, Jim, I'm making a covenant with you. And this is what I promise to do. And Jim, standing over here, would say, and I'm going to make a covenant with you, and this is what I promise to do. And what it meant was, we were standing in the middle of an animal that was alive and now dead. And what we were saying is this, if I break my part of the covenant, then I need to be dead. It wasn't, if I break my part of the covenant, well, we'll just, change the, we'll just change the terms of the agreement. It was, if I break my part of the covenant, then I need to die. Um, by the way, marriage is a covenant. Okay? When we talk about a marriage covenant, that, that, that's, that's what we're talking about. That's where it's sourced, is in this idea of this is a, this is a lifelong thing. This is a, this is a do or die kind of thing. And here's the significance of this. When Israel looked back at what their, their forefathers had done, and they repented of it, and they said, we don't want to go down that. In fact, God, here's what we're going to do. God, we want to make a covenant with you. And from this point on, we don't want you to play this cycle game. If we break our part, we don't want you to be patient and take us and put us into captivity so that we cry out. If we break our part, you just take our lives. We're that serious about serving you. We want to make a covenant with you, and we want to get the Levites and the leaders and the priests, and we want to steal it. We want to make this dead sure that we are going to change, God. That's our commitment, our covenant to you, that we're going to break this cycle. And that's pretty serious. And, and, and that's what I would challenge you with, is this idea that we have to step back sometimes and go, you know what, Lord, I'm going to get really serious about serving you. I'm going to get really serious about putting you first. I'm going to get really serious about putting you at the center of everything in my life. Not the things that I cherry pick out. I'm thrilled you're here this morning. That's awesome. It's awesome to me that in the middle of winter we get this kind of group on a Sunday morning. Um, it's great that we've got to sit here and have discussions about more chairs and stuff like that. That's awesome. But you need to understand that if we come here and we do this, and we leave, and we don't live differently, if this doesn't impact what we do on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, 
till we get back in here on Sunday? It's kind of a joke. Because you see, the world needs to see people who are consistent 24-7. The world needs to see people who are serious about God all the time. So that means the way you do your business. That means the way that you treat waiters and waitresses this week. That means the way that you treat cashiers at a checkout counter. Um, that means the way, the way that you interact with people all week long, they need to be able to see Christ in the way that we handle them. And it's so important for us to understand this because these people got serious about putting God first. Even to the point of saying, we're going to make a covenant. We're going to, make the, we're going to lock this thing in. And that's what I want to challenge us to do, is to step back and say, you know what, Let, I, I'm going to be serious about God all week long. All week. So I get up tomorrow and I say, all right, Lord, help me to, help me to be serious. Give me opportunities. Help me to be a light. Help, me to, help people to see God. Because Israel was saying, look, we're tired of the world seeing our God this way. We want the world outside of Jerusalem here to see God the way God should be seen. And in order for that to happen, that means we've got to change what we're doing. Because what our grandfathers and forefathers and everybody else, the game they had been playing, hurt our testimony as Israelites. We're going to change it. We're going to be the generation to change it. And I just want to challenge you because I think sometimes we lose all of that for us. And it gets, we get caught up in this world. And so somebody treats us wrong. Before we know it, we're treating them like everybody else would treat them. Um, and it's important that they see Christ in us. So I end it with this. We must learn to acknowledge that all we have comes from God. We've got to acknowledge our past. We've got to acknowledge and learn from things that we have seen on our journey in life. We need to break the cycle of things that don't please God and implement a life of things that do please Him. We must get serious about our relationship with God. And we've got to put Him at the center of everything we do this week. And that way we honor Him so that people can see Him in us. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Lord, it is easy sometimes to just go along and not really think about the way we live our lives. So help us to do that. Help us to be honest with ourselves, Lord, change the things that we need to change, break the cycles we need to break. The Lord, we'd be honest about the way we handle things, that it, we could handle things in such a way, Lord, that people would see Christ in all we say and do. And when it is all said and done, and Lord, we gather together in eternity. May we be able to look back and see that uh, we served you with the best of our ability and that uh, there are lives, Lord, that you allowed us to touch. And uh, Lord, uh, those lives went on to touch many others. And uh, just use us and, in, and uh, help us to stay close to you this week. These things we ask in your name. Amen. Um, let's stand together.